So this Advent, we've been talking about the minor characters of Christmas, those characters that you don't see in Christmas pageants and nativity scenes. And even in that, we know that the major characters that are in the nativity story are really minor in comparison to the central focus of Jesus Christ. And as we look at the minor characters, we are reminded uh, that we are to be minor characters, that uh, don't look to make a name for ourselves. We want to point uh, to the name above all names, Jesus the Christ. The world regards minor characters as unimportant, but the Lord is pleased to use the unimportant, the lowly, the humble to exalt himself. First Corinthians says this, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We've already seen this in the persons of Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist and Simeon, all pointing away from themselves to Jesus Christ. Well, this morning we come to perhaps the most minor character of Christmas, Anna. Her account consists of just three verses, Luke 2, verses 36 to 38. And here is a woman whom the world would regard as being the least important. And yet from what Luke tells us, she undoubtedly understood more about the full significance of the coming of Jesus Christ than perhaps any of the others who appear in the nativity narrative that we might see it before we read it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Indeed, God, you are the God of revelation who reveals to us the things that we would not understand apart from that revelation. And so it is that no one had expected the Redeemer to come in the form of the infant Jesus, except that you revealed it to be so. So we pray that you would reveal to us now, speaking to the very depths of our hearts and the fullness of our lives and our world, the reality of Jesus as the Redeemer. To that end, we need your spirit to come right now and to bear witness to the reading and proclamation of your word that we might hear you speak. And so it is, we pray for the preacher in the pulpit, knowing that he is not worthy, but by your grace, he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. You've got your Bible open. I encourage you to find in Luke chapter 2, verse 36. And again, just looking at those three verses, 36, 37, and 38, listen to God's perfect word. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. From those three verses, I would have you see Anna's activities and then Anna's announcement. First, uh, Anna's activities. And Anna really is a favorite of mine, and I hope she is for you as well. It makes me smile when I read that she never left the temple. I like to ask, where did she go to the bathroom? <laughs> where, where does she eat? Where does she sleep? When it says that she never left the temple, that's obviously hyperbole. 
It means that she did not just go to the temple in order to perform some sort of religious outward duty, but that her daily attendance, and to be there throughout the day even, was flowing out of a deep inward reality of her faith. In other words, she didn't just go to church and just go through some activities and then leave it. She lived a life of faith daily. We also remember that the temple is the dwelling place of God, where God dwelt among his people was in the temple. And so to say that Anna never left the temple means that she never left the presence of the Lord. She never wanted to be away from the Lord. Isn't that a great sentiment? Throughout the gospel accounts, we often read of the women who traveled with Jesus, that they never wanted to be away from Jesus. That even as others, the other disciples wandered, the women always remained close to Jesus. To be near to God is not something that comes naturally to us. If we are honest, we are actually repulsed by the holy God naturally because of our unholiness naturally. And in those moments that we are prone to temptation or have succumbed to temptation, that we have fallen and drifted in some way, shape, or form, It is a hard thing to be near to God because we experience the conviction of his holiness. And yet, when we surrender, we also find that he is always gracious, always extending mercy, that as we draw near to God, that he is there to embrace us again and again, that his holiness and justice is always mixed with grace, mercy, and love to receive us as a father who continually forgives his wayward children. The times that we least desire to be near to God are the times that we most need to be drawn near to God. And so it is so good to employ the means of grace, the word sacraments and prayer, whether we feel like it or not. And I wonder how many days that Anna was at the temple, not because she felt like she needed to be there or desired to be there, but because it was the right place to be. To be near to God was the right thing to do. And to be near to God was the right place to be all the time. And so it is that we continue to employ those means of grace, whether we feel like it or not, because God extends his grace by those means. Now, what do we we know about Anna the person? Well, in many ways, we know more about her than we did with Simeon. We're told that she was a prophetess. More on that in a moment when we talk about her prophetic announcement in verse 38. But we're also told about her, uh, her lineage, that she's the daughter of Phanuel. And if you're thinking, should I know that name? The answer is no. We don't know anything about Phanuel, except his name means the face of God, but nothing else is said about him anywhere. He was probably known, however, to that first generation that witnessed this account in real time. And it said that she's from the tribe of Asher, and Asher is not one of those well-known tribes. It's actually the eighth son of Jacob. The name Asher means blessed. And they would probably be insulted by my saying this, but they're a rather unremarkable tribe. (laughs) They they aren't Judah. They're not um, Levi. They're not Benjamin. There's not lots of songs or stories about the tribe of Asher. And so she comes from sort of an unknown background, but she's still very much part of the lineage. The thing that's most remembered about Anna is that she was very old. Unfortunately, in our current culture, age is often looked down upon. But her old age is honorable. 
One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 16.31. Gray hair is a crown of glory attained by a righteous life. Isn't that great? Gray hair is a crown of glory attained by a righteous life. Now, how old Anna was really is unsure. Most translations uh, translate verse 37, similar to what we have in the NIV, that she was a widow until she was 84. But the NIV footnotes and other possible translations, some keep this because it's uh, unsure, but it could say that she was a widow for 84 years, which would mean that she was over 100 years old. So not only is she advanced in years, but she had been a widow for the vast majority of her life. She was married for just seven years when her husband died. So this is a woman married for only seven years, and in the prime of her life, her husband died. And yet this didn't destroy her faith. In fact, her faith was strengthened. Her faith in God was strengthened. She drew closer to God as a widow. So Anna is a model of faithfulness as a widow, a model of faithfulness in advanced years, a model of faithfulness in facing all kinds of adversity. She's a great reminder that we all face adversity of various kinds. But if we truly know Jesus Christ, and if he's the Lord of our hearts, then adversity can bring about a strengthening of our faith and trust in God. It's also notable that the name Anna is the same as the name Hannah, which means gracious. And Hannah was one of the great heroines of the Old Testament, the mother of Samuel. And Hannah, who also appears to have been a widow and raised Samuel as a single mother. And God, who is gracious to her and to Samuel. One more quick note, because it's so relevant to our culture today. The NIV translates the end of verse 36, that she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. It's more literally translated by others that she uh, lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And it's one of those many places in scripture where it's simply assumed that people are virgins when they are married in the Lord. And that it really is the way that God designed for marriage relationship. To be sure there is forgiveness, but the Lord designed marriage to flourish most as two virgins married together. That, wor that word virgin is uh, the Greek word parthenia, which uh, throughout the ages, there are women, sometimes prominent women throughout history that have been made, named Parthenia. It's never been at the top of the name charts, but gets there once in a while. Parthenia is also the, uh, refers to the first printed collection of music for keyboards. How's that for a little trivia? Back in 1612, the first printed collection of music for keyboards was called Parthenia, or also called the Maidenhead, as it was the maiden voyage of the printing of music. All of which is to say, marriage is not required for faithfulness. Whether a virgin or a widow, God honors singleness, particularly as that singleness results in a focus on serving the Lord. That is certainly the legacy of Anna. The other legacy of Anna is her announcement in verse 38. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now remember the setting of what's happening here. They're at the temple in Jerusalem. And who's there? Joseph and Mary, who have brought Jesus to Jerusalem to do the purification ceremony 40 days after Jesus is born. 
And while they are doing the purification ceremony, out of nowhere comes this person they've never met, Simeon, who comes and Simeon proclaims that the Holy Spirit had said that this person, this infant child, was indeed the Lord's Christ. That this infant child is the consolation of Israel. Simeon had been moved by the Spirit to know this and moved by the Spirit to come to the temple and at that moment identifies the infant Jesus as this one and Simeon sings his song. And then having just finished his, semi, his, uh, his prophetic song, Anna steps up at that very moment and gives her prophetic announcement, a dual confirmation, if you will. Simeon and Anna together publicly pronouncing who this child is. And Anna's announcement is not about the political climate. It's not about the local sports team. It's not about the latest in entertainment. It's not about taxes or weather or the busyness of the season. Anna's announcement is this, the child. Her announcement is about the child to all who are looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Simeon had been told by the Holy Spirit that he would see the Lord's Christ, that he would see the consolation of Israel before his death. We don't know specifically what the Spirit may have told Anna, but this prophetess recognized the Redeemer when she saw him. And that's really quite amazing when you think about it. Because what people were looking for in a Redeemer was certainly not a little baby randomly brought to the temple one day. Many don't recognize the Redeemer even when he's presented as the Redeemer. There's lots of things that we don't recognize when we see it. I've talked about on a regular basis, and I know that others face the same thing, that you are looking for something on a shelf and you can't find it, even though it's right there. You go into a room and you know that there's something and it's right on the table and you are looking right at it, but can't see it. My wife sends me all the time to the pantry to get me to find something. and I'm looking right at it. It's not there. And then she comes over and she just grabs it right. How did you see that? I can never find it. Something in the fridge and it's not where I think it's supposed to be. And that's what it is, is I have something in my mind of what I expect it to look like. And if maybe the jar is turned or it's moved on its side or it's gotten sort of partially behind something. And so it doesn't look like what I expect it to look like. And so I can't see it because what I'm expecting to see is not what's there. So it is with the infant Jesus. Not at all what people were expecting the Redeemer to look like. Caesar knew nothing of the birth of Christ. Neither did the Roman Senate. The Greek philosophers, the generals, not even the Jewish high priests or the members of the Sanhedrin knew of it because none of them were looking in the right place for the right thing. And so it turns out that Christmas is for little people. Christmas is for the unimportant, the lowly, the humble, the minor characters. Anna recognized the Redeemer in the form of the infant Jesus. It's not what anyone expected the Redeemer to look like. And again, remarkable when we realize what redemption means. The English word, that prefix re, means again, and the root word redemption means to purchase or to buy. And so redemption is the act of purchasing again. It's to buy something back. When something is bought from a pawn shop, it is redeemed. In business, a company is able to buy back bond issues in order to cancel a financial obligation. And that's some of the sense that's in the biblical word for redemption. But there's also in in that sense of redemption, the uh, additional component of freeing a slave. Slaves that were bought and sold in the marketplace. 
A slave could be set free if someone would pay the price for their redemption. We were slaves to sin. Jesus Christ has entered into the marketplace and passed from dealer to dealer to buy us back, to purchase us out of the marketplace forever such that we can never be sold back into slavery again. Harry Potter fans know that Dobby became a free elf because the redemption price was paid a piece of clothing from its owner. Our price is set a bit higher than that. After all, we are made in the image of God. And the Bible frequently talks about the price of our redemption. Peter wrote, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The price of our redemption was Christ's blood. And every Old Testament sacrifice foreshadowed and anticipated what was found as fulfilled in Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. Anna recognized in the infant Jesus the one who would pay the price of our redemption from sin. When Luke says that she was looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is representative of all God's people, past, present, and future. And so it's also notable that Anna spoke about this to all those who were looking forward to this redemption. Anna wasn't the only one who was looking forward to this redemption because the Old Testament repeatedly looked forward to a redeemer to come. But most were looking for a military Messiah of some sort, someone who would make Israel great again. Yes, I meant to say it like that. They looked for a military Messiah who would drive out the occupying forces of the Roman army. Others anticipated a great teacher as the Redeemer, one who would change the worldview thinking of the masses. Mostly, each group looked for the Redeemer from their own group. The Pharisees expected the Redeemer to be a Pharisee. The Sadducees expected the Redeemer to be a Sadducee. The Essenes expected it to be one of the Essenes. The Republicans expected it to be a Republican. Anna recognized the Redeemer as the infant Jesus. The true Old Testament saints were not good people doing good things, but those who looked forward to God's Redeemer, whoever that may be. Abraham believed the promise that from his seed would come the blessing of salvation to the nations. David looked forward to the promise of the one to come to rule on that throne forever. Isaiah prophesied about the suffering servant to come who would redeem his people. And as we read earlier from Isaiah 40, speak tenderly to Jerusalem that her sin has been paid for. Prepare the way for the Lord and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. So where are you looking for redemption? Where is your hope? Is it in the latest tax plan? Is it in a Supreme Court decision? Is it in a soulmate spouse? Is it in the right job? Is it in paying off school debt? Is it in finding your life purpose, happiness and satisfaction in every activity? Our redemption is found 
in Jesus Christ. All the things that we want to see take place in this world are a fruit of the redemption that we look for in Jesus Christ. The promises of God point to the redemption fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. Anna knew the promises of God and was enabled to understand the infant Jesus as the heaven-sent fulfillment of every promise. And so it is that we too can recognize the Redeemer by understanding the promises of God. And as we seek out and read and meditate on those promises of God, we see them fulfilled in Christ. So looking forward to next year and walking through the book of Numbers and to see again and again what is anticipated about the Redeemer to come and to see that fulfillment then in Christ. And so we see the promises of God, not just for our individual personal happiness, but for the purchasing of people enslaved to sin, the rescue of systems and structures corrupted by sin, and the full restoration of every aspect of life and existence affected by sin. Anna's announcement that this child is the Redeemer King must be our announcement still today. That overdone Christmas song asked the question, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? The answer is yes. Mary did know because Anna just told her. And Simeon had told her before that. And Elizabeth had told her before that. And the angel Gabriel had even told her before that. Let's make sure that we tell everyone that we can about the Redeemer whose name is Jesus, who is indeed the truth, who set us free. Amen.